Yeah, so Evan and I, we social distanced for, we quarantined for like two weeks plus, and then we drove, so this weekend we drove, we're going to be staying with Evan's parents for a few weeks, months, like, I don't know, because working, we're both working from home, so it kind of doesn't matter where we are, and at least here we can like, there's a yard that we can go out in, and then we can go to the lake house and like, be there, so we're still social distancing, but... Um, now we're somewhere nice. Yeah, not cooped up in an apartment. I totally get that. It's funny. Uh, actually right now, this is all going, no, not in the background, but it was. Um, so his parents have a cat too. They watch Gary for a month. Well, we lived with his parents for a few months while we were job hunting, uh, in the East Coast after I graduated. And then, um... So Gary was living with us then. Then she lived with them for a while while we were apartment hunting in Boston. Mm-hmm. Um, and we finally took her back. So then his parents were like, oh my gosh, we, we need a cat. Like, Aww. it feels so weird not to have a cat. So they got a cat that looks just like Gary. They're both black cats. Um, but obviously bringing Gary down this time, they were going to have to like meet each other and yeah. interact. So <laughs> we've been slowly introducing them to each other and there's been some hissing but overall not bad gary's just sleeping in bed right now so i think they don't mind each other which is good because i was worried they were gonna murder each other that's good no i totally get that when um Jarell and i lived with um my like high school friend roommate um we went to college together too so i guess college friend um we she had a dog that basically was Jarell's. like Jarell was like always with this dog and so when we moved out to live like on our own we're like we need a dog and in come ollie (laughs) which ollie is nothing like the other dog diesel diesel's like the chillest coolest like dog ever and ollie will like make you regret your life sometimes <laughs> but ollie's so cute he is he is he's also like mellowed out a lot so that's helpful but when we first got him as a puppy we're like all right was this a mistake um <laughs> I don't think I could survive quarantine without a pet or life in general. It's just nice to have another being around. And I feel like 90% of my conversations with Evan are about the cat. Like, well, I'll just be like following the cat around all day, like singing her made up songs. And then we're like commenting on like, oh, big stretch, good kitty and giving her treats. And like, she's a form of entertainment right now. So yeah, that's really funny. Um, yeah, I feel like most of my conversations in general are with Ollie these days. <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. I literally, I'll like literally be in bed and he's like in the living room like, Ollie, Ollie, come here. Okay. So here's what I'm thinking about doing my case this week on. Oh. <laughs> <Like, Aww. laughs> um, so yeah, it's, it, it's, it's fun sometimes having a dog, no, especially I, if you're. I get that. I've yeah. been freakishly, I'm like freakishly the, the, the freakishly bonded with Gary now. Yeah. Like, 
because we hadn't been apart for like three months usually i'd like leave during the day to go to work and i wouldn't see her as much but now she's been there like 24 7 so when we were at the lake house this weekend for like a day and a half without her i was like so sad it was horrible (laughs) never again she's my child oh yeah i had (laughs) i like um just asked both Jarell and my mom this question my mom has never had a pet so i don't know why but i was like do you think ollie thinks that i'm his mother or i'm his sister (laughs) and they're like obviously he thinks you're his mother and i'm like okay but new question what if ollie thinks that i'm also a dog (laughs) (laughs) that's what evan says he He says that he thinks that gary thinks that we're just giant cats yeah i'm like how do we know what they i don't know and like sometimes the way ollie acts with me i'm like he might think i'm a dog like i'm not fetching that ball (laughs) i don't know gary will like drop off toys for us while we're sleeping like she'll bring her little toy mouse and like leave it in the doorway and then when i wake up i'm like oh there's a mouse there great thank you gary (laughs) she's very thoughtful very thoughtful that cat but yeah i don't know well that's i don't know if she thinks that i'm her mom or she's my mom oh that's a good point probably need to talk to a therapist about it it's fine (laughs) hello everyone and welcome to pink collar crime a true crime podcast focusing exclusively on crimes committed by women i'm rachel And I'm Natalie. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. Each week, we're going to tell you about one or two cases of crimes committed by women and discuss details, motives, similarities, and differences, etc., etc. If you like our show, tell your friends. Please subscribe and give us a five-star rating and tell us what you love or don't love about the show. And give us a follow on social media at pinkcollar underscore pod. So this week, I believe it is your turn to go first this week. We also are taking things in a slightly different-ish direction, kind of staying along those positive vibes, which I feel like helps out a lot now. It's kind of like depressing to hear about bad cases. Yeah. So this week we are doing hashtag good crimes. Yeah. So women who have broken the law and i think this will be a constant theme too of of cases i'd like to cover because i think there's a lot out there but women who have broken the law for good because the law is not always right so that's what we're doing and it's your turn to go first So my case this week, um, it actually is probably going to be a little short, but I think it's pretty interesting. Um, So I am doing the case of Emma Goldman. Do you know who that is? Nope. Never heard of her. (laughs) Um, So Emma Goldman is who is sometimes considered to be the pioneer for birth control And she actually mentored Margaret Sanger, who I feel like most people should know as the mother of Planned Parenthood. So I didn't know that. Well, now you do. (laughs) Feminist. (laughs) 
Okay, Margaret Singer. Um, committing that to memory. <laughs> Don't worry. Uh, Roxanne Gay says it's okay for us to be bad feminists. Okay. Um, I don't know who that is either. She's a writer. She is Haitian American. Okay. And she writes really awesome things. And she is the topic of my mixed media club this week. Roxanne Gay. <laughs> I'm going to write that down. Um, uh, she has some good audiobooks. So I highly recommend it, especially stuff about weight. And I like um, her book. I like Bad Feminist and I like Hunger. Okay. So, okay. Um, anyway, uh, Emma Goldman was born on June 27th in 1869 in Russia. Uh, I think where she was born in Russia is actually present-day Lithuania. So cool. I love it when lines of places change. Uh, I'm Lithuanian. Good job. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's all my right. people. Cool, cool, cool. Um, there's a lot of, I feel like there's a couple where I'm like, yo, Rachel, connections in this. But uh, okay, so, go so for she, was, it. she was born to a uh, Jewish, a poor Jewish family. And around the age of 16, she fled Russia, which was going through its own civil and international struggles at the time. And she ended up in Rochester, New York, which is... That's where I am right now, basically. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Um, So once in Rochester, she began working at a factory. And due to her own experiences uh, with the poor working conditions at the factory, she joined the labor movement, which a lot of people who worked in factories um, in New York were doing at the time. And uh, through the labor movement that she was a part of, she protested against those awful working conditions and also advocated for an eight-hour workday and union representation. A great influence for Emma was the Haymarket Riot in Chicago, um, where anarchist workers organized a rally that turned violent um, against the police. And so the result the result of the riot was four anarchists were hanged. And despite that being somewhat of a cautionary tale that actually inspired Emma to move to New York City and join her like their own anarchist movement. And that's where she met and began some sort of romantic liaison with a fellow anarchist and a Russian named Alexander Berkman. In 1892, Alexander attempted to murder the owner of a steel mill uh, following a worker strike that turned violent. I read a few different things about this particular worker strike, and it sounds like the owner is the person who kind of turned it from a peaceful uh, strike into a violent strike, and then... One thing led to another. Alexander attempted to kill him. And that attempt is what set Alexander to prison. And prosecutors also attempted to charge Emma for knowing about um, Alexander's plans. And they arrested her and all that fun stuff, but were unable to charge her or move forward because they, of course, had no evidence of that. And so Emma was very impassioned when it came to the anarchist movement, freedom of expression, and achieving equality and rights for women and workers. She was a skilled orator and writer and often gave speeches and wrote pieces that impassioned other young people into action. In 1901, Leon Zolgosh, which I have to 
totally look up the pronunciation. It's like one of those like CZ names, which is very hard for me. I don't know how to pronounce things. <laughs> I, see, I didn't even look up the pronunciations in my case. Like, I'm just going to wing it. So good for you. Uh, yeah. So Leon Zalgosh, which I am was not familiar with. He actually assassinated President William McKinley in 1901, uh, oh, wow. which... Fun fact on a sad case is that took place 10 years after William McKinley pardoned Cassie Chadwick from our pre- one of our previous episodes, um, who then went on to pretend to be the Carnegie whatever's daughter. Oh, wow. <laughs> Interesting connection yeah. there. Yeah. Um, and so anyway, after the assassination, police immediately tried to implicate Emma in the assassination of the president because... Oh my gosh, wow. Yeah, because Leon had apparently attended one of Emma's lectures in Cleveland, basically about, I don't know, whatever she was, um, I don't know what that particular one was about, but it was about something. (laughs) And because he had attended the um, lecture before he assassinated the president, they assumed that whatever she said during the lecture must have been what called him to kill the president of the united states at was the time. her lecture titled how to kill the president of the united states like i'm gonna i'm gonna guess no because <laughs> they're probably really overreaching there yeah i mean they arrested her and they tried and tried and tried but they ended up having to what release her freedom of speech or well like, yeah come on well yeah so that was one of her big things is that you know she here she is a girl who fled russia where russia even today unfortunately freedom of speech and expression are not you know in their most prized tenets and Mm -hmm. she is in the u.s and she's you know advocating for all these things and here are police showing up with you know like sticks and whatever um to basically intimidate her into being quiet um, so that was one of her big, like, things, I guess. I don't know. Um, and so in this case, they had to release her without charges because she was not involved in any way and nor was there any evidence that actually suggested that she was involved in the assassination of President McKinley. Um, and so because of all of the harassment that Emma received, like police just showing up anywhere that she was, um, and really trying to intimidate her into, you know, not fighting about the causes that she was so passionate about, she retreated from public life for a time. And she, during that time, and even before, she also worked as a nurse and a midwife, and she serviced poor women and immigrant workers on the Lower East Side of New York oh, City. That's amazing. Good yeah. for her. Which um, I think is super cool. Um, this is a side note. If you... <laughs> Actually, I don't think you'll actually like it the more I think about it. There's a show on Netflix. It's a BBC show called Call the Midwife. And it's like, it's like old school. And I've heard of it. Yeah. And it like goes, it just goes through kind of like what it was like giving, um, being, I guess, a midwife and what childbirth kind of was like in your, in England at the time. And it like goes through like, the whole history kind of you see like the how it changes from like women have to use gas to you could actually go to a hospital to give birth and like different things like that so it's kind of an interesting show but 
I don't think you'll like it. So maybe maybe I'll try to. I I wonder if I have tried to watch it at some point. I feel like sometimes those old timey medical shows really freak me out. Yeah, like that's why I'm thinking that it might be a little much for you. <laughs> Who knows? It's quarantine. Yeah, I've um, got a lot of free time on my hands. <laughs> all right well good luck (laughs) um so through her experiences as a healthcare provider for poor women she became convinced that birth control was essential for not only improving the lives of women but also a foundational step in achieving economic and sexual equality between men and women um obviously unfortunately the people that bear the burden of having to raise a child or any of the, um, I guess, social ramifications for either giving birth to a child in poverty, poverty, or giving birth to a child outside of wedlock is a woman. And so that um, definitely infringes on their economic and sexual freedom. And so uh, because of that, she became a, quote, crusader for women's rights and social justice. Uh, She even went as far as attending a neo-Malthusian Congress in Paris in the early 1900s, which widely supported her ideas about reproductive rights and freedoms for women. At this point, she started smuggling contraceptive devices into the United States. Oh, wow. Uh, Yeah. By 1915, she and her protege, Margaret Sanger, who we just talked about as the mother of Planned Parenthood, um, were working on a massive movement for access to birth control and contraceptive education. They both gave many frequent lectures on the right of a child to not be born and demanded that women's bodies be free of the involvement and coercion of the government. Emma believed that not only denying women access to birth control, but also the right to education regarding birth control was symptomatic of the general social, political, and economic injustices that were all too prevalent at the time. So taking matters into her own hands, um, in addition to smuggling contraceptive devices into the United States from overseas, she began creating and disseminating educational materials on birth control to women um, and holding just huge like lectures for women about their reproductive um, options and basically kind of inspiring women to fight for their own reproductive freedoms. Unfortunately, At the time, there was a law known as the Comstock Act of 1873, which federally outlawed disseminating contraceptive devices and contraceptive information through the mail or across state lines. Oh, my God. Yeah, the law itself. um, Yeah, it is crazy. And I, like, did a little background into the law, like, Comstock, like, sounded like someone's name. And so the law itself was named after a politician, a man, of course. Of course. <laughs> Andrew Comstock, who apparently was a huge believer of Victorian morals. Um, and he thought that anything related to birth control should be deemed illegal, obscene, and lascivious. And so he created a law. They signed it into law, I guess. And there we go. And so it made it illegal even for doctors to talk to their patients about contraception. Or at the very least, doctors were... Like, seriously yeah what the heck i don't like that well it's like how nowadays aren't there some like weird laws in certain states about if like a woman's getting an abortion about like what the doctor tells her yeah like i i'm not 
up to i, I think really they're know, but i don't know exactly which states but there's like a few things where it it's almost like this weird like intimidation practice where like the doctor is required to like tell or like, like show the women, heartbeat or something yeah like required to tell women all of these things about like where the like fetus is at this stage of development and where they'll be at the time of abortion which for a lot of women who are in that situation are already vulnerable and puts them in this position where they feel like they're being guilted into not having an abortion which is well, yeah your doctor's supposed to be like your advocate and it's supposed to help you like regardless of what your their views on things are so definitely don't like that and it's kind of creepy that it's like still exists there's like still weird archaic laws like that to this day yeah. knowing that like this comstock thing you know was a th- i'm sure that there's probably still like weird laws no on- they're definitely I remember, well, because I grew up in a suburb in Illinois, and I feel like my education on contraceptives and and all that was pretty, like, straightforward. My high school definitely didn't have, like, any, you know, they weren't, like, wait until marriage or anything like that. And then I went to college in Oklahoma, and I was taking a psychology of human sexuality course, and our teacher one day was like, okay, raise your hand if you, like, got actual sex education in school. And, like, me and, like, two other people raised their hands. And then they were like, okay, who got the, you know, no sex till marriage? And then, like, everyone else raised their hands. And I was like, oh, this is why Oklahoma's so messed up. That's not good. Yeah. <laughs> like, and I it's kind of scary. There's a direct, like, it's clear, like, that type of education does not work right like just give people the facts of the situation and like clearly um so this is just a random fun fact though but i think it's hilarious um one time i was talking to jarell and i was like do you know why like menstruation like why why girls get periods and he looked at me and he's like yeah it's biblical right what (laughs) jarell oh my god (laughs) That was like a year or two. That was maybe like two years ago. And I was just like, are you kidding me? <laughs> but I mean, it just goes to show that like the education is really lacking. Yeah, I mean, like, he like went to like he went to both public school and private school in Alabama. And there you go. Alabama. And so just yesterday he and I were talking. Um, I Like I was giving him the ins and outs of menopause and he like we were just talking about the science of it and he was just like in shock like the whole time and finally at the end he goes so this is all eve's fault right oh my god <laughs> and i was like all right well i'm glad you're a catholic uh catholic school education decided to chime in there <laughs> so um yeah, the Comstock law definitely intimidated doctors into not wanting to talk to their patients about contraception or anything like that. And so, unsurprisingly, um, because Emma was not only smuggling contraceptive devices and disseminating them along with educational materials about birth control, she was arrested um, at least twice for violating the the Comstock Act, um, once in 1915 and another time in 1916. 
Emma was able to turn her night, her 1916 trial into a national forum on birth control. And it attracted other activists, writers, intellectuals, artists, and just women to attend and follow the travel, the trial through the news. Um, in the end, of course, Emma lost and was sentenced to either a fine of $100 or serving 15 days in a workhouse. She chose to serve the 15-day sentence, and two weeks later, more than 3,000 people attended the Carnegie Hall meeting that marked her release and to get as much information as they could about birth control. So it still kind of worked out in her. Yeah, in her, their in her... plan backfired. Exactly. And... Um, she went on to live her life. I didn't do too much uh, digging past this. Um, but as we know, her protege, um, Margaret Sanger, uh, took a lot of what she learned and worked with um, with Emma on and created several organizations that eventually became what we know as Planned Parenthood. And so Emma was just a huge like pioneer and crusader for um, the right to and access to birth control for women in the United States. So go Emma. That's amazing. Thank you, Emma. Yes. <laughs> Did uh, Margaret Singer ever break any laws? Maybe we can cover her. On um, probably. I feel like it, I feel like it was not hard to break laws in the 1900s, True. like blanket a man and you're going to prison. Show so. your ankle. <laughs> yeah. No, makes God makes forbid. sense. Yeah. Um, that was such a good case. Yeah, That's I thought you would like it. <laughs> warmed my heart. What a what a wonderful case. So I am uh, now. I just feel like I'm just sharing like all the ethnicities or whatever that I am. But I am Polish, <laughs> majority Polish though, like more Polish than anything else. Which you know most people in chicago or like from the chicagoland area a lot of polish immigrants went there so a lot of people in my area are polish but so i've been getting into my polish ancestry a little bit i bought a polish cookbook i made pierogies the other night and they were okay but i could definitely make them better um but this tangent actually is going (laughs) somewhere um i was on reddit the other day and it was talking about this one woman who was polish and she saved all these kids um from getting killed in in the holocaust so i was like that's amazing i hope i'm somehow related to her but i don't think i am um (laughs) But I was Sorry. like, okay, I have to do this for the podcast because this is just like such a cool story and also falls along the lines of she was doing something for good, but was very much punished for it. Um, and like I said, I didn't look up pronunciations of any names and I should know how to pronounce names because I'm Polish, but I don't know anything. So um, it's just going to go terribly and bear with me. Um, so Irina Sendler was born February 15th in 1910 in Otwok, a part of the Russian Empire. Sendler was baptized Catholic, but her family lived in a a mainly Jewish community. So her father, Stanislaw Heinrich, this is where I'm going to mess up, Kryzanowski, he was a doctor. (laughs) You don't know any better. Um, (laughs) Stanislaw, that's funny, though, because my, one of my great, I think it was my great grandfather or maybe great great grandfather was named Stanislav but um when he came here he changed his name to Stanley 
My mom's so. name's Arena. <laughs> oh no way! I hope I'm Spelled pronouncing it though. <laughs> it's yeah, I R E N A. So would you say yeah, that's it could Arena? be Arena or it could be Arena or Irina? But yeah. I refer to her as Sendler throughout the whole thing, so it doesn't matter. Right. Um, <laughs> but so. Sendler, Arena's father, was one of the first Polish socialists, and he also was a doctor. I already said that, but in case I missed it. Um, He cared for underserved populations in his community and would treat them free of charge. In February of 1917, Stanislaw contracted typhus from one of his patients and unfortunately passed away. Um, Her mother, Janina Carolina, was now widowed. So the Jewish community actually came together and offered um, the family financial assistance after Stanislaw's death, but they declined and they were like, no, we're just going to, you know, go on on our own. So in spite of this, Sendler went on to study law and Polish literature at the University of Warsaw. She developed a reputation for being a communist and a philo-Semite because she was frequently getting in trouble. She opposed the ghetto benches system practiced at Polish universities during this time, which required Jewish students to sit on the left-hand side of classrooms. Sendler also defaced the non-Jewish identification on her grade card. So Sendler was denied employment in the Warsaw school system because of her bad reputation at the university. She later became associated with the Free Polish University, where she met activists in the illegal Communist Party of Poland. She worked with a group of social workers led by Professor Helena Redlinska, where she was exposed to many cases of extreme poverty in the Jewish community or in the Jewish population of Warsaw. Sandler encouraged her colleagues, colleagues and fellow activists to generate false medical documents, which allowed wounded Polish soldiers and poor families to obtain aid. Um, so this was during a time where it was like illegal to provide people care and um, especially the Jewish families. So she was just, you know, doing whatever she could, cutting corners to, to get people access to care. So anti-Semitism was alive and well in Poland when World War II broke out in 1939. Germany invaded Poland on September 1st, and the authorities ordered that all Jewish staff be removed from the social welfare department where Sendler worked. They also barred the department from offering any assistance to the Jewish citizens of Warsaw. In November of 1940, nearly 4,000 Jewish families were forced into a small area of the city known as the Warsaw Ghetto. Nazis had sealed off the area, but that didn't stop Sendler from finding a way in. She was able to request a special permit that allowed her to enter the camp to check for signs of typhus. Germans, the Germans weren't interested in, you know, providing aid or, you know, stopping people from getting sick within the camp. They just didn't want it to spread outside of the ghetto and possibly get them sick. Um, So Sendler and her colleague, also named Irina Schultz, would sneak in clothing, food, medicine, other necessities, saying that they were conducting sanitary inspections. Many of Sendler's friends and colleagues ended up inside this camp, so this was really personal for, for Irina. And about 5,000 people a month were dying inside this camp due to starvation and disease. So eventually, Sendler and other social workers uh, began to work together. They had this plan to smuggle babies and small children out by whatever means necessary. Um, 
So Sendler not only was risking her own life, as the Germans had made any kind of assistance to um, the Jews punishable by death, but they would also, you know, kill your family, kill your entire household if they found out that you were helping um, uh, helping uh, the Jewish community. So this was, you know, really high stakes for her. So it wasn't an easy decision for the families either. Um, Sendler would have to convince mothers to give up their children, knowing that there was a big possibility that they're um, that they would never see their children again because so they sad. would. I know this part I was like almost crying this was terrible um but so you know it took a lot it took so much courage and like sacrifice like geez on the end of the mothers in those camps to like you know and trust like a stranger that like this person's gonna take care of your child and give them a better opportunity and allow them you know to escape being tortured later like this is just mind-blowing like I can't even comprehend it um but so they used extremely creative means to get these kids out of the camps. Um, they would take them out in coffins, in ambulances, in the um, ambulance wagon. Actually, the children would be hidden under floorboards and the drivers would take a dog that like barked really loud. So it would drown out the sound of the children's cries. Oh, that Aww. sentence just got really sad. Um, I so like goosebumps. Oh, my God. Like, this is so crazy right like the the fact that someone is you know so brave and so you know passionate about helping other people at a time where like she did not have to be this selfless she did not have to she was like sack she was making such a big sacrifice and like it's just so hard to think about like if you ever you know wonder how you might react in a situation where um it's like do you ever like wonder things like that like what would i do if i was you know in this place at this time like yeah would i rise up would i not say anything like you hope that you'll be you know i would hope that i would rise up but that's what i yeah very like averse to bad things so (laughs) well i feel like in these situations you know you might kind of get um what's the word like brainwashed a little bit yeah or well especially you know we talk about people who commit crimes in a bad way but if someone's telling you that something's illegal or something's bad like these people are bad and that's like all you know i feel like it could be easy to maybe not easy but i mean we can only hope that we would you know react this way and sacrifice make sacrifices and do everything we can um so just getting back to my script so i was talking about the dogs barking um some of the children were carried out in potato sacks and one time a mechanic even took a baby out in a toolbox so they got really creative about what they would do um this part's also really sad but they would tape the children's mouths and sometimes they would sedate infants to make sure that they wouldn't cry as they were getting taken out of um the the ghetto um so after uh, Sundler got them out she would make fake birth certificates with Aryan names and would have them be taken in by Christian orphanages and convents or you know families whoever was willing to take someone in and Sendler would write the the kids real names on a list in a code and she buried them out in jars um, so she could come back and dig them up later you know once this was all over um, to to hopefully reconnect these these kids with their families 
Um, so in October of 1943, the Nazis became aware of what Sendler was doing. She was arrested by the Gestapo. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Gestapo. Gestapo. Um, they were the, the Nazi secret state police. They tortured her, trying to get her to share the names of these children. They even broke her legs and feet, but Sendler refused to share the names of the Jewish children or of her associates. She was sentenced to death, um, but was saved at the last minute by Zagoda members. I don't know what Zagoda was. I should have written that down. Um, but I believe it was people in the, the Polish Socialist Party. So they bribed the Germans into halting the execution, and Sendler was able to escape from prison, but was actively pursued by the Gestapo for the main, remainder of the war. Um, so the war ended in 1945, and Sendler dug up the jars containing the names of 2,500 children that she and her colleagues had smuggled out of the ghetto. Unfortunately, most of the children had lost their families during the Holocaust, so she wasn't, you know, able to reconnect them to their families, sadly. But um, uh, the children, they only knew Sandler by her, her code name. She used a fake name when she was uh, coming in and out of the ghetto, Jolanta. Jolanta? Mm -hmm. um, but her picture was published in a newspaper one day honoring her wartime work. Um, Sendler said she received many calls from the children who were now grown, thanking her for rescuing them. That's so beautiful. She was such an amazing woman. Um, she definitely embodies, you know, the theme, crimes for good. However, she never considered herself to be a hero, nor did she take any credit for her actions. She once said, I could have done more. This regret will follow me to my death. Which, like, Aww. oh my god. That's so sad. You've saved 2,500 children, and you're like, I could have done more. I could have saved more kids. I know. That is, oh my god. Like, goosebumps everywhere. That is so sad. She's literally the anti-Georgia tan. <laughs> right? I was thinking that, like, she gives, she saved, gives people babies back. Yeah. That is, oh gosh. So there's actually kind of a twist, like a, a happy-ish ending to the story, okay. too. So Sendler's accomplishments were largely forgotten after the war. Um, many acts of heroism were suppressed by communist Poland, so she didn't really get the recognition that she, you know, definitely deserved. Um, not that many people were aware of her heroic action. Blah. I almost said that with a really bad Chicago accent. <laughs> heroic actions. In 2000, four students at Uniontown High School in Kansas stumbled upon Sendler's story. Uniontown High was in a lower socioeconomic, really rural school district. Um, but these girls worked together to create a history project. They made a play about Sendler's life and they called it Life in a Jar. They ended up winning uh, the Kansas State National History Day competition. Their names were Elizabeth Cambers, Megan Stewart, Sabrina Coons, and Janice Underwood. And their teacher, Norman Conrad, gained recognition across the world for this. Um, their play was first performed in Kansas, then the Midwest, then New York, LA, Montreal, and finally in Poland, full Aww. circle. So Sendler finally got the international recognition that she deserved. Jack Mayer wrote a book um, about her life called Life in a Jar, the Arena Sendler Project, telling of the Holocaust history and the inspirational story of the students. 60% of the royalties from this book are donated to the Arena Sendler Life in a Jar Foundation um, that encourages uh, educators and students to focus on unsung heroes, 
um, which is really great. I think I'm going to actually try to buy this book so I can read it while I'm in quarantine. Um, so in 2003, Sendler was awarded Poland's highest distinction, the Order of the White Eagle. And in yeah, in 2007, she was nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize, um, but I don't think she got it, sadly, but she was nominated. Um, and in 2008, Sendler passed away at the age of 98. Well, bless her. Which is, she, you know, lived such a full, long life. I think that goes to show that being a good person is good for you. Because <laughs> I will be excited if I live to 98. Well, actually, I plan on living till I'm 115 years old. But that's, you know, another story for another day. Okay. I mean, I don't plan to live that long. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> I really like both of our cases this week. They, um, like yours was a little sad, but it like warmed, warmed your heart a little, you know? I know. And I feel like that's, you know, especially what I need right now during quarantine. Um, and I was hoping that the podcast would kind of have this angle of women who were like rebels and who, who did things for good. Our music is the track Wasteland by Joseph McDade. His Patreon and our podcast sources will be linked in the podcast description below. Any mistakes are entirely our own, so check out our wonderful sources for the most accurate information about these cases. We talk about some tough subject matter on our show. If you or someone you love is in need of support, please reach out to the Crisis Text Line by texting HOME to 741-741. They are available 24-7 and will connect you with a trained crisis counselor. You can also reach the National Domestic Violence Hotline by calling 1-800-799-7233. Thank you so much for listening to our show. Join us next week for another episode of Pink Collar, a true crime podcast.